2: The PM trots on as some kind of version of a chair, uh, not a particularly strong one, uh, and the chancellor is now the CEO.
3: That was Jim O'Neill, former Treasury Minister, of course, of the UK, now at the House of Lords. And this comes after the Chancellor of the Exchequer, the new Chancellor, ripped up most of what was left of Liz Truss's controversial economic programme.
2: You know, having to actually shred every, pretty much every policy that she campaigned on in order to restore the confidence in, in the UK for investors. I mean, it, it is remarkable. And is it going to work long term or is in fact the damage done by the last few weeks going to leave scarring for years to come?
3: Yeah, and if we think about it, so together with earlier U-turns, right, these decisions reversed almost of everything that she had put in place in September, and that, of course, continues to raise questions about whether she can survive in office.
2: And it's the markets that have undone her administration.
3: I'm Francine Lacqua.
2: And I'm David Merritt.
3: And this is In the City, Bloomberg's podcast connecting you to the stories and the voices at the heart of the City of London.
2: And this week, just how uninvestable... Is broken Britain. We spoke with uh, Jonathan Goldstein, uh, the chief executive officer at Kane International, and crucially, now the co owner of Chelsea Football Club.
3: Dave, there's no better club than Chelsea, right?
2: Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Come on, he's not going to. Co- Jonathan will not come I back to on unless he support Chelsea. Now,
2: but I'm not a Chelsea fan anyway. Yeah, I mean, neither is he. We, no, we no, talk, no, or no. he is now,
3: but he wasn't back then. So we talk a little bit about um, why the reversal or how he loves Chelsea now so much.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And then we bring back an audience favorite, a newsroom favorite, our favorite, of course, our very own editor in chief, John <laughs> um, who is musing on the weekend's dramas and Jamie Hunt's performance in that job.
3: John, you, you were great on the podcast 2 weeks ago, so we decided to have <laughs> We've you back established that. to try and understand like what is going on. Does Liz trust now is she even in charge anymore?
4: I don't think she's very obviously in charge at the moment. Uh, Jeremy Hunt seems to be in charge. And he's doing broadly um, responsible things. The market's are sort of agreeing with him. But the problem is that once you've sort of alerted someone to a gigantic hole in your numbers, even if he's sort of moving in the right direction, he's still got a lot of, lot of space to cover up. And so at the moment, he's in an extremely strong position because if he goes, then the whole government collapses.
2: The fact that he, this is someone who didn't get anywhere near the, 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 the leadership himself when he, when he attempted to, to, to suddenly have all of this control and to completely rip up all of the main points that Liz Truss campaigned on—it it is extraordinary—and and how on earth can she continue as prime minister when everything that she's campaigned for has now been shredded?
4: Well, that's that's the question that I think lots of Tory MPs are asking, as a question a lot of the public are asking. And I think the main thing that she seems to be doing is to sort of wait on a, ve- a mixture between trust Jeremy. Plus, wait on events, you know, maybe something will appear that will make her look more prime ministerial, but the moment the kind of the, the the way it's going feels very much as if in the end it's it's very hard for her to remain the The single thing that keeps her apart from events is the fact that they don't seem quite able to agree on who to replace her. You know, you could sit, I sat beside cabinet minister at the end of last week and he was you know not exactly <laughs> pushing her forward but um you know the moment you start saying well maybe rishi makes sense he starts the people from the right of the party start looking Hard the moment you go the other end of the party, people you said Jeremy Hunt that would cause problems to the people on the other side. There isn't an obvious person for everyone to link around.
3: I keep on getting calls, Dave. You're going to love this from Americans saying, Is it true? Is Boris Johnson really going to be back?
4: <laughs> well, the answer is you know, sometimes you end up being the least bad option. I th- I'm pretty sure the Tories would rather go for somebody named Ben Wallace maybe Rishi Sunak. The, the These sort of people, maybe even Jeremy Hunt, ironically. He's doing the perfect thing of sitting there saying the last thing he wants to do is to do this. Um, this is the Cincinnati <laughs> strategy. So, so
3: no Boris Johnson? I, mean, the, is that I really? still think
4: Boris Johnson's unlikely. I don't know what you two think. Well, I, you know,
2: obviously, when you think about the need for a unity candidate, I mean, in the past, you could probably have Argued that Boris Johnson could have been that person. We know that he has a talent, had a talent for stitching together coalitions of people who don't normally vote Conservative. But you know, the polls showed that all that all of that political capital had evaporated, hadn't it, earlier this year? And they find themselves with no one left who isn't tainted in some ways on either side that can actually bring all these MPs together. It's what struck me, John, is that it's the sort of the cattiness and the infighting that we're hearing. You know, they, they're just rowing with each other. The Tory Party at the moment, aren't they? Totally.
4: Totally. There is there is a kind of hardcore of them who are just simply thinking about one thing, which is survival. They they, they now very much just want somebody who's going to provide a route to them hanging on to their seats.
3: I mean, it's difficult to know to think the notion that you also have conservatives that are now, you know, rallying. Against the free market, since it's almost Trumpian. In, in I think. Its I
4: think what's interesting is the fact that the unique genius, and I don't think any of us could have quite written this. Um, if you would, if you'd written this as a kind of political thriller, I think you would have had very. You, your publisher would immediately have said that doesn't add up. But the unique genius of the quasi Liz partnership <laughs> has been to blow up the free market end of the of the Tories as well, because they're also livid with her. Yeah. Because she did something that Margaret Thatcher didn't, um, and she sort of blackened the name of free markets and even tax cuts to some extent. Um, so, so it, it is a unique, <laughs> it's a unique talent, not just to annoy the kind of um, the centrist Tory Middle England lot, but also the people who actually believe some of the things that she claimed to believe they are also really cross with us. so so that you know there is no great love for her in any part of the party it's just simply an inability to find somebody who they can unite around without having to go to the members who we've already established do not always make very good decisions
2: and we're seeing the markets rally quite strongly today we're taking this on on monday big um surges in Government, UK government bonds and, and, a, and a leap up for the pound but we're still not anywhere near the levels we were before certainly on, on government debt interest rates are higher so there's lasting damage isn't there for this You know, Hunt can sort of claw back a little bit of credibility but there's now a premium isn't there on British government yes, debt that totally. wasn't there before
4: Totally and that is the problem is that once you blow apart credibility it's very difficult to get it back I mean if, again a big if if Sunak had come in or if Jeremy Hunt had been <laughs> had been here um, a month ago and they put forward a plan to you know roughly along the lines of what he's now proposing, it would have been okay. But now suddenly, due to the way that the trust and Kwasi Kwarteng put their put their particular package forward, suddenly the idea that you could be have a forty five billion dollar forty five billion pound hole in your budget or or perhaps more, is no longer sustainable. In the old days, people might have said, "Well, look, you've had an energy crisis; we'll let you have that." But the bond markets now don't trust them, no. and that's that's re- that makes things much much more difficult. So it is, no matter what people like Jacob rees try to say, it, you know, this is this is very much a self-inflicted wound. It is not just the dollar rising and things like this.
3: John, thank you so much. Thank you. Now to our interview with Jonathan Goldstein, Chief Executive Officer at Kane International and co-owner of Chelsea Football Club. What what has been most outrageous, actually? If we just start, you know, in the last two, three weeks, a lot has happened. As a businessman, what are you most incredulous at?
6: I think I'm most incredulous at the notion that the Conservatives are railing against the market Mm. for having disabuse them of, of 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 their policies and when you're when you're hearing senior government ministers saying oh that's just the market and as as if they wish to control suddenly the free market i mean ultimately what has happened here is that the government has brought along a series of policies which the market has rejected and the market has repriced them and said okay if you want these policies and you want this debt this is what we're going to charge you for it And ultimately, that will lead us down a road of being more expensive as it is today than Italy and Greece and take us into South American territory where we could end up getting worse if they doubled down on this policy. So for me, the incredulity of of watching conservatives bringing unfunded tax cuts to the marketplace, not having educated people about what was coming, and then complaining that people are saying, hello, we don't want to fund that is is probably it's, it's, the most extraordinary remarkable.
2: situation that we've seen. But throughout the leadership campaign, you know, we sat there all summer, didn't we, watching them argue this out. And a big part of what she's talking about wasn't necessarily a surprise. She said she was going to scrap the, you know, roll back the national insurance hike. She said she was going to cut corporation tax. Rishi Sunak said all along if you do unfunded tax cuts, interest rates are going to surge and it's going to, I think the quote was it's going to cause misery for millions. I mean, he must feel like shouting I told you so, right. But actually, you know, business people at the time, and we had people coming on this podcast saying, you know what, I think Liz has actually got the right answer. We've got to cut taxes to get this economy going. And But where's she gone wrong? Because that, that instinct to cut taxes is surely quite conservative, isn't it? Well, it is. But first of all, we have to step back and say, who gave her
6: that mandate? And it was 87,000 people or thereabouts out of a population in the high 60 millions. So she has no mandate. I think secondly, you have to say, if you look today, the reason that I think she's in such trouble is there is not a policy that she can get through Parliament. I think they were just talking to themselves over a summer They weren't listening, they weren't really thinking it through, and Rishi has been proved to be correct. Hmm.
3: But is this a problem because it's the same party having been in power for 10 years? So if it's the same party, if you want to be radical or kickstart the economy or go for growth, then almost automatically, I don't know whether that's true, but this automatically, does it make you take decisions that actually the markets won't like?
6: I, I think it's a combination of two factors from my perspective. The, the first one is, yeah, it's this, this, the dangers of incumbency. You know, if we, if we look around the retail world over our lifetimes, how many retailers have survived through 30, 40, 50 years? Because when you get to the top, it's hard to stay there. It's like in sport. And that's why Federer and, and, and Djokovic and Nadal are so amazing because they've stayed at the top for so long. Dangers of incumbency. And the second thing is, I think each time there's been a change of leader, from Cameron through May, through Johnson, through Truss, the mandate and their and their reach has gotten narrower and narrower and narrower. And Liz Truss has now played the ultimate narrow card with a very fringe element. Look at the quality of her front bench. She can't even agree with her front bench in public at this moment in time. And as a result, I don't think she has the ability to carry anybody with
2: her. So, you know, what's changed at the moment, I think, compared to the, when when May was in power, Okay, you know, is the opposition, right? And I think for the first time, and we're hearing this, aren't we, Francine, it's like, yeah. people are, the city, where we're sitting now, people are really paying attention to what Labour have got to say, Rachel Reeves, what is she going to do? So how much faith do you have that they are the solution to this mess we find ourselves in?
6: Well, solution's a strange word, okay? And I'm, I don't think any of us want to see her and predict the future. But obviously, in looking at politics, you can only look at it by reference to the quality of the opposition. So, you know, Keir's opposition at the moment is looking pretty weak. I think Keir Starmer has made a very strong case and a very strong grab to be more centrist, certainly than his predecessor, and even more than Ed Miliband before him. Now, I think over the course of the next two years, Obviously, he's not going to say very much. Why would anybody I'd say, say very much, much now, as right. leader of the opposition? No. But I do think he still needs to carry on proving that he is the man, in the, that he is that centrist politician. Because I think if he does, I think he has a very, very big area in which he can occupy in British politics.
3: But what does business want today? So even if you had a change in government tomorrow with the general election... Labour will come in with huge problems to fix. And we understand that actually Labour want to wait maybe one or two years. So what does business need now? Can, with the U-turn of the government, and I know they say you know it's like you know going down with an elevator and then walking up the stairs in terms of getting investors back, but can they turn this round until a general election in two years?
6: Business needs stability. Business needs to understand the direction of travel in which a country is going and we don't currently have that. We've had three sovereign wealth funds that we are in business with say to us at the moment, United Kingdom's on hold. We're actually- Uninvestable. We are uninvestable at this point in time. We'd rather watch and watch and wait because why would you do that when you have the ability to choose between markets? Britain looks uninvestable at this point in time. So for me, what business absolutely desperately needs is stability. We need to understand the direction of travel. And, and the problem I think that Liz Truss has, has has got is that she's shown her true instincts and her true colors. And the question is, can she withstand the change of policies and actually get the confidence of people having shown her true instincts? I mean, the, the, the political judgment in going from 45p to 40p irrespective of the fact it was only $2 billion of the $65 Yeah, marginal, billion, right. It yeah. was marginal. It's not the point. It showed her true instincts. And I do not know a 45p taxpayer who welcomed that change. Yeah. I don't know one. I've, and, and everybody was embarrassed by it. Everybody can see society. Everybody can see the food banks. People know that people are struggling. And it, it was instinctively wrong. So I think the biggest thing that we need is stability. And the question is, can Liz Trust provide it? That's a big question.
3: Can we spend maybe a bit of time talking about the anti-growth coalition? Because this is, we've seen it, you know, in politics over the last five, six years of leading politicians, heads of states, President Trump, accusing anyone, even if it was from their own party, that was against them personally or their ideas as, as bad. Is this just becoming more right or left wing in politics? Is it divisive?
6: I mean, it's, it's hugely divisive. I mean, and I, I think it's very uncomfortable. And if other people with more insidious... Uh, motives were to use this phraseology of people in North London driving to you know podcasts, and the, uh, the anti-podcast uh, coalition. And, and,
3: we're, we're not North London. Yeah,
6: <laughs> we're and, West. And everybody, and everybody in the, you know the, this sort of phraseology, people would begin to interpret it in a, in a dangerous way. It's extremely divisive. It 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 it, it is it, it is childlike in its approach. And it's simply not backed up by facts because the members of this anti-growth coalition would appear to include maybe 60 to 70% of our own party. So is everybody anti-growth? I'm not anti-growth. You two are not anti-growth. It, 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 it's oh, a I nonsense. it's generally a good idea. Don't you think but, so I mean, growth yeah.
3: is usually something that people welcome. <laughs> exactly. Especially in power.
6: <laughs> We'd quite like it. So I, I, I am, you know, it is Trumpian in its nature. I, I agree with you. And, and for me, the whole of the last, Few weeks or 38 days of her prime ministership, however many it is, feels like a microcosm of what America lived through in the last five, you know. But
2: months. he actually did win an election, didn't he? So I think, you know, but this is like an accelerated or a condensed, you know, pl- play of that. And and the polls are totally disastrous for her, right? I mean, I, we've got a record lead for Labour. Right? Was it, I mean, it's points? not working, is it? The playbook mm-hmm. isn't working anymore for her.
6: And I, and I think the point that you made before. When you look at a front bench of Keir Starmer, Rachel Reeves, Yvette Cooper, David Lammy, Wes Streeting, they look like the grown-ups suddenly. They look like a group of people who the public could corral behind. And that's not happened. That's never happened. She has promoted um, and, and endorsed their approach in a way in which they Probably could never believe.
3: But Jonathan, like th- three months ago, you'd you'd be at dinner parties or you know with people inside Westminster, and they said Keir Starmer's problem is that he's boring, that he didn't excite the crowds. So is is boring now good?
6: Boring seems good to me today. If boring means we'll stabi- that, right? if boring means stability, if boring means that uh, I can speak to our investors, speak to our. Um, it, businesses and then understand the direction in which they're going, then I'll take boring.
3: Do they need to be more like Tony Blair's new labor so that international investors don't freak out?
6: But I, I certainly think that Kier now has the opportunity over the next couple of years to build that base, to create that image. and I think that he has understood. I think he's just hired somebody in, as a deputy uh, uh, Campaign manager, who was part of the, you know, part of actually part of Tony Blair's um, foundation, I think he's very much going on that journey. He understands that the middle ground is there for grabs, and uh, I think he'll take advantage of that.
2: And Rachel Reeves, uh, as a, let's assume she's a Chancellor in waiting, then, if things fall apart, if we have an election sooner than two years, what, as a businessman, what should she do if she gets in? sitting at number 11 Downing Street, what, how can she go about fixing the problems that we face?
6: Well, I think it's an impossible question to answer because obviously you know, you have to play with the hands you're dealt. Um, obviously I think the, 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 the first situation that needs to occur, and in fact, Kim made a big speech at the end of July about his relationship with business and he, he, you know, in that he talked about a balanced budget. And that's clearly not something that the Conservatives currently believe in. So I think if you start from that position, there are obviously gonna to have to be some very difficult decisions that any new government's going to have to make. I mean, if you look today, in order for the Conservatives to meet their tax cuts, they've got to make 15% of cuts outside the NHS and defence. So they're going to have to take some big cuts over the course of next year. So I think Rachel's going to have some very, very big decisions and difficult decisions to make. And is, is she reaching out to business? Yeah, any- I think you know, they're doing a huge amount of work yeah. they're doing a significant amount of work they've brought in Lord O'Neill to, to look at the business world and understand how they can interact with business and I think they're working very hard at trying to to, to establish themselves look they, they've got a very big hill themselves to climb That it may have been made easier by the conservatives but clearly the Corbyn, the Corbyn world which you would argue is not too different from maybe the trust economics policies is, is something they need to distance themselves from and I think the removal of the whip and the continuing ostracization of that part of the party is a, a journey that he has to carry on and he has to double down on to get the confidence of, of the public.
3: Is football investment apolitical? I mean, you, so you're, you're one of the new co-owners or a right-hand man to Todd Bowley of Chelsea Football Club. You don't support Chelsea, do you, Dave?
2: Sorry, That's, Arsenal.
3: Oh, and I liked you so much until now. <laughs> I'm a Chelsea I'm so supporter. Sorry. More out of circumstance than choice. But yet here we are. Is it fun, first of all?
6: Well, yeah, it's great fun. <laughs> and it's very very proud to be involved and be a part of Todd and Badad's team. Um, I think that, that, you know, if you look at the fundamentals of, of football business, it's based upon long-term broadcasting contracts with very significantly and strong credit-worthy parties. It's based upon sponsorship agreements with, with again, hopefully very strong parties. But obviously there's a very large part of it that depends upon ticketing and, and the, the, the normal man and woman in the street being able to afford to come to football grounds so it's not isolated entirely from the from the economy uh, neither should it be um, and it's a release for people as well mm-hmm. but I, I think you know history has shown that people are so wedded to their season tickets that in some senses they'll pay for their season tickets more than give up other things but it, it's not immune but hopefully you know that the, the strength of the brand, and the strength of the product carries it through difficult
2: economic cycles. I mean, the, if Chelsea had come on the block now, in the current environment, do you think the, if things might have been different? Do you think that well, the, the investors there, and, and particularly from the US, would have still come?
6: When you use the word investable, there's always exceptions to every rule, okay? So, so the football's first, immune a bit. Right, a bit. so the first thing you have to say is that the, the pound dollar has moved 20% even since June when we completed the acquisition. So that's appealing, right? So, so that means that in dollar terms, yeah. these assets are much cheaper. That creates an opportunity. I still think most investors outside specialist opportunities, and you know, Chelsea was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, so there are always going to be exceptions to every rule. And you would think that Americans are looking at Britain today and saying, okay, it looks cheap so that will create opportunity and i think the large funds across many industries will begin to dip their toe into the marketplace looking at the world over a 3 to 5 year horizon
3: in, in football
6: in football and and in other areas i think in real estate and in other business other business areas people britain will one of the redeeming factors here is that Britain might well start to be seen to be cheap and that people will have faith in the stability of our democracy, the stability of our rule of law, that notwithstanding the noise that we're seeing every day, the country but a good devaluation
2: of the currency, is that, is that actually could be a silver lining?
6: I think absolutely, yeah. absolutely it is a silver It's potentially a silver lining for, for people who, who understand Britain and understand that ultimately this will pass, as it always does. But in order to be a long term business, you have to have the cash resources to see through the cycles. If you see through the cycles and you believe in the long term stability of this country, which we all do, then there's huge opportunity here.
2: With all the uncertainty in the economy, is now the time to do a huge project like redevelop Stamford Bridge? <laughs> I mean, is that, is that going to happen sooner rather than later or is it, is it, is it not the time?
6: No, I think that, that you have to do it when you have the opportunity, when, 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 when everything aligns. Uh, we've just taken control and we are looking very heavily at the redevelopment that one hopes that this type of environment will encourage local government will encourage central government to get behind projects and help you move those forward with a huge
2: project right I Right?
6: I mean the planning process is something which we will start during the course of the next year and we'll hope that the Hammersmith and Fulham and then the central government will get behind it and and see it as an engine for growth and that's really what we're talking about, to create an environment where people can grow. The only problem, of course, in all of that is the management of interest rates in that mm-hmm. environment because it makes it so much more expensive mm-hmm. to develop. Um, and we've also got the issue of labour and construction, and but, but mm-hmm. we'll put that aside for the purposes of today. Right, but
2: so you're not delaying that process?
6: No, no. We will carry on working as fast and as hard as we can. Uh, But it is a very big project and there's very many constituents involved in that process. Um, And we are at the beginning of that process. Um, But we will carry on because we believe in our business and we believe in Chelsea Football Club and we believe in the area. Um, And we know that over time, Stamford Bridge needs redevelopment.
3: What's been the most surprising thing since, you know, coming into Chelsea? I know I got a lot of questions. We spoke a, po- a couple of weeks ago and said, oh, you didn't ask him why he wasn't a fan of Chelsea before <laughs> and whether that, that, you know, taints his lens in, in, in a bad way.
6: <laughs> I said to you, this was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity and I, I, I've, I've been thrilled and proud to be involved. I think one of the things that's that 's really surprised me um, or you know you, you you're never this close up to to, to that type of business and it 's something which you see through a somewhat you see through a mirror don't you? you watch it through your television screen The quality of the individuals involved has has been hugely impressive the the, the playing staff across both the men and women 's teams the management the staff within the business because ultimately it's a people business. And when you meet the Rhys James and the Mason Mounts of this world, they're incredibly humble, they're incredibly grounded, and that's been hugely impressive to all of us involved. And and, and, and that's been extremely innovating to, to, to become close to them and watch them, and therefore when you talk about this journey and my own personal journey, you know, you can't not want them to succeed. You're, you, you, you've got to know them, you see them, and you see how hard they work and how much they're committed to the football club. So I'm, you know, thrilled when I see them win I'm thrilled when I see them perform well because you're part of it now and, uh, and you want them to succeed. Amazing. Brilliant.
3: That's Thank a you brilliant sir. way to end, no? Perfect. Perfect. Was that,
6: okay? that was great. That's that was race. brilliant.
2: Awesome. Ha- no, it was brilliant. I love it. We segued. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this week's In the City. We will be back next week.
3: But in the meantime, if you like our show, please head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate, review and subscribe.
2: And also, don't forget, sign up for our newsletter, The Readout with Allegra Strassen on blogberg.com slash newsletters or check out the show notes for a link.
3: This episode was hosted by me, Francine Lacqua.
2: And me, David Merritt.
3: It was produced by Summer Sadi,
2: And special thanks to John McElthwaite and Jonathan Goldstein.
5: Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Steeple Financial advisors, let's face it, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. There's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com.
1: Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.